0: And let us begin. So we are on the book of Proverbs, um, chapter 17, and we're doing the commentary of the Malbim, and we are on verse 8. And um, we're going to be talking a lot about kind of fooling ourselves today, fooling ourselves and fooling others, and how much we um, are willing to be honest with ourselves. So um, all right, so let's jump in. Here we go. Number eight, and we're on page one eighty. For those of you who are following along in the book, okay. Evinchein hasho'chad be'eneba alav. A bribe is a charming jewel in the eyes of him who has it. El kolashar yifne ya-skil. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Okay, so here we're talking about bribery. Um, bribery. Hi, Stacy and Ellen. Welcome. Hi, Karen. Um, so bribery is obviously not a good thing <laughs> to do. Um, I uh, I remember when my kids were little and we used to bribe them to do things. Uh, and somebody once told me, I wish I could remember who, because it's such a great line. They're like, it's not called a bribe. They're like, a bribe is when you pay someone to do something wrong, and incentive is when you pay someone to do something right. I said, oh, I kind of like that. Okay, that makes sense. So, I didn't feel quite as unethical bribing my children to do the right thing because it wasn't really a bribe, it was uh incentivizing, which I like that somehow that feels much better. So the Torah is full of instructions particularly to judges, right? Or anybody who's in a position of leadership to not accept a bribe. And of course there's all kinds of different levels of bribery. It doesn't have to be an actual physical bribe. Sometimes you know people flatter us or will be rewarded with their friendship or with status or with honor or with glory and so we have to be very mindful of this kind of bribery in our lives and make sure that the decisions that we're making are being made with with integrity and authenticity um and not because of some external gain particularly some external gain that somebody else wants us to have so um All right. So let's look at the commentary. So this is a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, Devarim, chapter 16, 19. And this is where the Torah gives a directive specifically not to accept a bribe. Why? For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise. That's what it says in the Torah, right? That even a very wise person who says, oh, I'm not going to be influenced by that. That I, I totally understand that that person is trying to flatter me and, oh, they just sent me flowers before, you know, I'm deciding who gets to uh, be on the baseball team or in the dance, you know, committee or whatever it is. Oh, come on. I see right through it. But the Torah doesn't say that a bribe blinds the eyes of the foolish. It says a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise. That means even a person who knows exactly what's going on and who sees the social dynamic has to understand that they are still vulnerable to a bribe. If somebody is buttering us up or offering us friendship or status, we will be impacted by that. And the biggest problem is if somebody considers themselves immune, because it's when a person considers themselves immune that they stop being mindful and vigilant. And that's really where the danger is. So that's what it says in the book of Deuteronomy. The commentary continues, even judges who think themselves incorruptible will find their perceptions influenced by the by the gift of a claimant, right? Somebody sends you a present, all of a sudden, right? You start to see things a little differently. So we have to be very conscious of this dynamic and having given a bribe a man will no longer bother preparing seriously for his appearance in court he feels like a person wearing a charming jewel which must win him favor with everyone the bribe is certain to decide the judge's verdict he will succeed so i think that a lot of people understand that they have to avoid bribes in you know professional settings or legal settings but i think in social settings it's still very um slippery when this happens you know where if you know if you vote the way i want you to vote on this committee or in this board or whatever then i'll reward you in some subtle way and so we we have to be careful not only to be not to be vulnerable to these kinds of manipulation but also not to be a party to this kind of manipulation right particularly when it comes to people in your social circle who are um, influential in some way. I remember when I just uh, led my last trip to Israel in July, and there was an Israeli mom who was talking to me about her daughter had applied for a certain job in the army. And, you know, of course in the army, just like in everything else, there are jobs that are more desirable and jobs that are less desirable. Right. So, you know, if you make friends with this one and you butter up to that one, you know, and, and in some ways, you know, in some ways i feel like this is a very jewish thing to do oh i have paul i know their uncle or this one is my friend or we went to college together or uh that's my you know father's cousin and we're almost like encouraged to use this kind of you know protexia it's called in israel right this kind of uh i don't know like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, these like strategies to sort of position yourself more favorably, you know, and, and this woman was telling me that her daughter did not get the job she wanted and that she did have connections that she could have used to pull strings for her daughter. And she asked me, what did I think? And I said, you know, this is probably a controversial position, but I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of of doing that. I'm a fan. I said, first of all, your daughter will learn a lot from disappointment and from you coaching her through that disappointment and from learning that everything happens for a reason and that she can make the best of her situation. And I said, in the long term, she'll probably gain much more from that experience than from you pulling strings behind the back to get her the job. And then somebody else who doesn't have those connections is not going to get the job, right? Because you're taking it away from somebody else. And it was very hard for her to stomach because I think, you know, those of us who are Jewish mothers, I think we almost feel like, well, this is what you do. You go to bat for your kid. You're a mama bear. You pull all the strings that you can pull. You know, I I remember when one of my daughters was applying to a seminary in Israel and she didn't get in. And one of my friends says, well, you should totally contact this person and that person and get her in, you know? And I was like, I don't do that. And she's like, why not? (laughs) I said, well, first of all, I believe that everything happens for a reason. But second of all, that feels like manipulation to me. And I I know what I'm saying is controversial. And I know many people would say, no, that is your job as a mother to pull those strings. Um, But I was never, ever comfortable doing that. To me, it feels like a bribe, calling in favors and angling yourself to be, you know, to be looked at more favorably than somebody else. And I just, I'm just really, really not a fan of that. And I think that we have to be conscious of when we're doing it both when we're accepting you know those kinds of favor pulling and when we're calling in those kinds of favors as well um because it's not really ethical it really is not that's my that's my take on the situation so um so that is um that is what the verse is trying to teach us that when um, the bribe is like a jewel which, you know, we feel like, well, this jewel is so sparkly and shiny, of course, everybody's going to like it and everybody's going to look at me favorably, right? But the, the deeper and, and, you know, wherever I turn, I'm going to prosper that if I pull these strings, all of a sudden doors will open for me. But that is not the ethical way that the Torah wants us to behave. The Torah wants us to get ahead on our own merits and not because we, so to speak, bribed the judge. Aside from which in a parenting perspective, I actually feel like it is not a good lesson to our kids um, to see that if they fail at something, their mommy will rescue them and call in all the favors and other less fortunate or less connected kids are not going to get that kind of um, advantage. Okay, thoughts, comments on verse eight.
1: I have something. Am I muted? You're good, Sherry. We hear you. I'm
2: muted because I'm outside. Um, so it's interesting that you're mentioning this because there's a big um, discussion about kids who can do internships in order to get into college versus they have to work at McDonald's or some kind of place. So, you know, the the more wealthy are often able to go to like uh, Puerto Rico and help with the hurricane and then other people have to make you know living and help their family and whatever so it's like how do you weigh and I thought that this mm. was an interesting discussion about families of of privilege you know so it's just interesting to see the difference of you know pulling strings and who gets to build habitats for humanity and who has to go to work and mm.
1: all yeah the,
2: on, and on I your, know, I,
0: yeah I don't think there's anything
2: all wrong. Good. nothing wrong right but yeah. just the of the the privilege of being able to do an internship versus getting,
0: yeah. And so. I don't think there's anything wrong with that if you are a family of means and you can afford for your kids to have certain experiences, there's nothing unethical about that, right? In fact, in this right. past week's right. Torah portion, there's a very interesting teaching. It says that um, uh, it's talking about uh, eating meat and how the Torah permits us to eat meat, and how does the Torah describe it? It says. If you desire to eat meat, according to the blessings that Hashem has given you. So Rashi, who's the prime commentator on the Torah, he says, what does that mean? He says that if a person cannot afford meat, then he should not desire it. It says, if you should desire meat according to the blessing that Hashem gives you, meaning if a person cannot afford certain luxuries, He should be satisfied with what he can afford. But if a person can, if Hashem has blessed him with means and resources and he can, that's fine. Then you can eat meat, right? And I was just thinking about, You know, there's a lot of discussion in the community about the simchas that people make, whether it's b'ni mitzvah or weddings and about how people of means often throw very extravagant simchas. And there's a lot of conversation about whether the more privileged class of society is responsible to downplay their wealth so that other people don't get jealous. And, you know, like, in other words, upon whom is the onus of moderation? Is it on those who cannot afford it? that they have to work on themselves not to be envious and to only desire according to which God has blessed them, right? Or is the onus on wealthier people to scale it down even though they can afford it so that they're not creating envy? So, you know, obviously both things are true, but this particular verse in the Torah seems to indicate, no, wealthier people will have access to more luxury and that's totally normal. And and it's it's on, you know, those who cannot to work on themselves to only desire that which they can afford. Now, I still think that there's a level at which it becomes totally over the top, which obviously is gonna vary depending on the community, right? where a person has to exercise moderation and not be ridiculous, hard to say where one would draw that line. right? So I don't think there's anything wrong if a person can afford for their kid to have a certain experience and that's gonna set them up for college. Again, that's not unethical. It's when you're using your privilege to pull strings that other people cannot, you know, to sort of call in favors that are under the radar that 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 child didn't actually earn according to their own merits, right? (laughs) That's where it crosses the line into using your advantage for unethical gain. Right. I think the point
2: was also that, you know, not everybody, I love the idea of internships and work, but I think the point was that not everybody can intern yeah. you Now that it's a privilege to intern okay. I don't know it was just an yeah. article I, yeah I never thought of it that way
3: Stacy, you know we have a friend who many years ago made a bar mitzvah for well he had the name mitzvah because he had three kids but extravagant parties and we used to have these little discussions I guess I was judgy but I was like how do you do like how do you do that how does that make sense a day and I loved his response because it was so it made me think a different way he was just like if I can do this to celebrate my kid he goes it's not about anybody else it's about me celebrating with my kid on this great day and I was like now that makes sense it had nothing to do with anybody or being showy like he was loving being able to like whatever he could have done if it was ten dollars that's what he would have done and it would have been just as great to him mm. and he was able to do this really big mm-hmm. obnoxious
0: <laughs> you know it. I also but it was had-
3: awesome it made it so much better for me.
0: Yeah, to be able to look at it that way. I also yeah. had a conversation once with my cousin. Some of you know my cousin, Miriam Koval. She's also a very dear friend of mine. Um, And we were one time also at a very extravagant wedding. And I was also being a little judgy. I will confess my sins here. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so over the top. And she said, you know how I look at it? And she has such a beautiful eye, the way she looks at things. Those of you who know her know exactly what I'm talking about. She goes, oh, you know how I look at it? I said, how? she goes, they included us all in their extravagance. So let's just have fun. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? That's right. That's true. They invited the community to share in their extravagance and to eat all this amazing food and to look at all these beautiful flowers and to dance on the mirror dance floor. You know what I mean? They're not they're not just doing it, hoarding it for their own nearest and dearest. They've decided to share it with the, that, with their largesse, with the community. So I thought that was also a really nice way to look at it. You oh, really beautiful. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, Sydney.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it was last week. I feel like my husband said something There's in the Parsha.
2: And also Rashi says something according to what you have. You also, it, it obligates you. So. Yeah. That's an awareness
0: also that, yeah, that was another place it said in the parasha that during the holidays, when the Jews used to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and it says that you should bring animals for offerings, according to the blessing that God has blessed you, right? That if a person has more, they're obligated to give more. And if a person has less, they're obligated to give less. So there is definitely a sliding scale of spending that is completely legitimate. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Okay,
0: any other thoughts on eight before we move on to nine? I have one Yeah, Erin. Okay, so this
2: is a question, but back to what you're saying about
1: calling speakers and, you know, making connections. I think Erin has disappeared. Okay. Let's hope she comes back to us soon. Oh, there she is, Erin. You there? Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. It,
2: went, it went away. Okay,
1: you're back. But I guess
2: I'm. Isn't it just whatever you end up doing is going to happen, in regard like the outcome of your child getting whatever they're going to get meant to happen either way.
0: Yes, that's a great point. It is so we can't we can't really outsmart god in any case right so that's a great point so why would we engage in unethical or questionably ethical behavior when whatever is meant to be is going to happen anyway right and and that that doesn't mean of course that we're not supposed to try we're not supposed to make our best effort but we should make our best effort within the realm of what is ethical and right we're definitely not going to gain from unethical efforts so that's great. And I think Erin disappeared again, but, oh, there you are. You're back. But that was, that was a great, um, great comment. Thank you. There's also the whole concept of um, unintended consequences that I feel happens all the time. Like, I just know when my kids were little and I would try to get them like on a special yeah. sports team and I would do it and it would unintended consequences. It would always turn out not the way I plan. So mm-hmm. I think it's better to just let it be. <laughs> That's so true. I used to have a similar experience when my kids were little and, um, you know, they all went to like a smallish Jewish day school and there would be a lot of conversation among the parents about advocating to for your kid to get a certain teacher. And really like the rule at the school was you can't request a certain teacher, like, because then the school would be like completely inundated. So they would just, you know, assign the classes, you know, and there were always my friends who would be constantly calling the principal and saying, my kid needs this teacher, my kid needs this, you know, and I used to say to myself, like, I don't know which teacher is going to be best for my kid. Maybe I'm going to advocate for this teacher. And then it's going to end up not being the right teacher. You know, the teacher that I thought would be easier, you know, now, again, There's exceptions. I think that there are special cases where, you know, there are kids who really do have a certain different kind of need, and that's different. And then I think a parent does have to advocate for their kid, um, you know, where there's a particular reason to do so, you know, some kind of out of the ordinary, you know, context. But in the normal, you know, way of running things, I just used to sit back and I would be like, you know what, whatever is by it will happen. And then if I see that it's not working out, then I will definitely step up and advocate and try, you know, but I don't know, you know, it could be that that teacher that I think is too strict is the one who's going to motivate my kid to step up to the plate. Whereas that other teacher that I thought my kid needed was gonna be too easy for them. I don't know. So there is definitely this, aspect of, again, barring certain exceptional circumstances, but generally speaking, like just leaving it in Hashem's hands and saying, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily even know what's best for my kids. So, and and this is very true when it comes to college. Where people pull all these strings to get their kids into prestigious colleges. And very often what that kid needs is actually to be in a smaller school or a quote, easier school, or a school, a school that's more suited to their, to their capabilities and interests, right? Even though some parents want their kids to be in these prestigious schools. And I'm not just talking about college, I'm also talking about, you know, Jewish programs, Israel programs, where they really want their kids to get into this, you know, so to speak, brand name program or school because it'll really look good you know on their transcripts or it'll look good for their reputation or da 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 right and sometimes it's much better for the kid to be a big fish in a small pond than to be the small fish in the big pond so when we try to force solutions sometimes we do get into trouble okay great comments everybody thank you okay number nine He who covers up a transgression seeks love, but one who harps on a matter estranges a familiar friend. Okay, I'll read that again in English. He who covers up a transgression seeks love, but one who harps on a matter estranges a familiar friend. So, what we're trying to see here, what we're seeing here in this verse is that th- this idea of covering up a transgression, when somebody does something wrong and instead of owning up to it and admitting it and trying to make it better, they cover it over and try to pretend it didn't happen. Right? And the second, the second half is how one who harps on a matter um, is strange as a friend, that meaning t- telling your friend constantly that they did something wrong uh, is a really good way to lose a friend okay so um okay so let's do the commentary here love covers all transgressions this is previously in chapter 10 that means that even if i do things wrong but if i act toward others with love right that hashem will overlook many of my sins because i'm acting toward the world with love hold on i'm just flipping back to that verse to see 10 12
1: and
0: 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Okay, so um, a person's love casts a forgiving cloud, even over real acts of injury against him. So this means that Even if people did things wrong to me, but if I really know that they love me, I'll be more likely to forgive them. Right. And this is the same way that God looks at us that even if we do things that are wrong, when we act lovingly to each other, God is much more likely to forgive us. Okay. So love covers all transgressions. The converse is also true. If someone covers up a transgression, he elicits love from the wrongdoer, meaning that. Um, So what it's saying is he who covers up a transgression seeks love, meaning let's say somebody did something wrong to me, right? I'm not covering up my own transgression. I'm covering up their transgression. So somebody does something wrong to me, right? And I say to them, you know what? It's okay. It's not such a big deal. I understand it was a mistake. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure you really didn't mean it. I'm sure it didn't come out the way it sounded right that person is going to elicit love from others when we are forgiving. So obviously we shouldn't cover up our own transgressions, but we can try to utilize that character trait to cover up or ameliorate somebody else's transgressions. And if they do something wrong to you, to try to give the benefit of the doubt and to overlook it. Should he harp on the matter, however, but let's say... You know, there are some people who have the most unbelievable memory and they never, ever forget something wrong that somebody did to them. Right. And they might say things like, do you remember 20 years ago when it was blah, blah, blah. And, you know, people say, like, you should never bring up these, uh, you know, in a marriage, <laughs> you know, don't bring up the past. And when we were getting married and when we were getting engaged, we were dating and you did this and you did that. Right. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Right. Actually. The book, The Ways of the Righteous, which we're studying on Tuesdays, um, one of the character traits there is the character trait of forgetfulness. And while forgetfulness is generally not considered a positive character trait, the book explains that there is a very useful way to be forgetful, that we should mindfully forget all the mistakes that other people have made. You You don't have to have such a good memory all of the time. Just be a little forgetful right? Sometimes my kids say to me, do you remember when you used to do this and that? And I'm like, no. it's all a blur. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, right? I'm like, could you, could you please forget that too? Okay. One, two, three, go forget. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you wish you could like delete the hard drive, you know? So here we're being asked to remember our own transgressions so that we can make them Right. But be forgetful about other people's transgressions. Cover them up. Don't don't make them such a big deal. Push them into the background. Should he harp on the matter, however, reproaching a friend repeatedly about a misdeed, he will even turn him into an enemy. So that's a good way to lose your friends, right? Is If you're constantly reminding them about the mistakes they've made. Nobody wants to be constantly reminded about the mistakes they've made. We have all made mistakes. Right. And in the context of a long term relationship, we want to be forgiven for those mistakes. OK, yes, stuff happens. Come on. As long for if you know somebody for a long enough amount of time, you're going to make some mistakes. But what if we could just confer a little forgetfulness and a little forgiveness onto those mistakes? Or it means. So here's another way of understanding this verse. That if the transgressor repeats his offense, right? Because the second half of the verse says, one who harps on a matter is a familiar friend. So this is what happens when a person makes a mistake, but he doesn't just make it once, right? We said that you should try to be forgiving of your friend and forgetful of their misdeeds, but what if they do it over and over again? What if they do it all the time? That's not just like a one-off, that's a pattern. So then what? If the transgressor, transgressor repeats his offense, he will ultimately estrange his friend. The other will no longer pardon him. So listen, you make a mistake once. Yes, you should expect your friends to forgive you. But if you keep doing it, you can't expect people to just keep forgiving you because now that's who you are. Now that's a part of your identity. So people are not just going to keep looking aside this applies also to the relations of a man and his maker, right? Man and God. If a person persists in his sin, the almighty will no longer forgive him. Why? Because what does forgiveness mean? Forgiveness means I recognize that you're not that person anymore. And so therefore I'm willing to let it go. But what if I am that person still? And I'm still doing it. You don't have to forgive somebody who's still doing it. You you could still, for your own peace of mind, try to understand that maybe this person is acting that way for whatever reason, and maybe it's not personal, and maybe it doesn't have anything to do with you. But still, you cannot be expected to fully forgive somebody who is still engaging in their harmful behaviors. And people like that, I always say this, some people are easier to love from a distance or some people are easier to like from a distance, right? And so you have to give yourself a little distance in that relationship so that you can still be civil to that person, but you are not expected to keep overlooking their misdeeds. In fact, there's a mitzvah in the Torah, as many of you know, uh, you, all, all, all ye serious Muser students know that there is a mitzvah to give the benefit of the doubt, right? Somebody does something wrong, you're confused. You don't know why they did it. There's doubt. There's a mitzvah to give them the benefit of the doubt. When in doubt, assume the best. But what if there's no doubt? You know exactly who they are. You know exactly what they're doing because they do it all the time. You do not have to give the benefit of the doubt where there's no doubt. This is an established pattern of behavior. You are not required nor expected to give the benefit of the doubt. Okay, I see we have a question from Cindy. What if it's a relative who continues with transgressions even after you called them out? I am gonna throw that question out to the group. How would you guys
1: answer Cindy's question? Mm I mean, it's tricky because, am I muted, No, you're good.
2: Okay. Um, It's tricky because if it's a parent or a sibling, but I think one of the things I work on is forgiveness, but also understanding that people only have a certain capacity, that sometimes we ask people to do things that they're really not capable of. and
1: That is
2: an um, and either engaging or disengaging, but knowing that everybody is kind of doing the best they can, unless they're very seriously ill. And that might not mean it's at our level, but that might mean that that's as far as they can go.
0: Mm-hmm. Does
2: that help? Because we really can't change anybody. I like that.
0: That Sherry, that reminds me of your how
2: we look at Angela.
0: You're kind of you're kind of freezing, Sherry. But um, what you just said reminds me of a quote uh, that you once told me: uh, "Unless he's wearing a diaper, you can't change him." <laughs> is
1: so true
2: <laughs> and another favorite quote another I up with that but another favorite quote is forgiveness is really giving up the concept that things are going to change mm-hmm.
0: that things
2: past are going to be different
0: because mm-hmm.
2: you can't change them
0: yeah you know, it's so interesting, too, because what you're saying is reminding me of, um, you know, my one of my daughters is in this stage of life called Jewish dating, um, where she is, you know, dating for marriage and like really very marriage minded, you know, kind of not not meeting with a guy until, you know, we've all sort of decided that they have shared mutual values and all of this So every now and then, you know, somebody mentions the name of a guy and tells us about him. And a lot of times the response that we give is he sounds like a great guy, but he's not for me. Meaning it it could be that he's an incredible person. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's for me. And and I'm finding that like what, you know, because the way the way we do it in this like Jewish matchmaking system is, you know, somebody will mention the name of, oh, my neighbor, my cousin, my blah, blah, blah. And then we find out about them. We ask their relatives or their neighbors or whatever, you know, what can you tell me about this guy? And what we've learned is not to ask, oh, just tell me about the guy, but we we describe our daughter. And then we're like, this is our daughter. And this is what kind of guy she's looking for. You know, does that sound like it fits the bill? The question is not about his moral character as much as, is he a good fit for my kid? And I, I've just been thinking that that's really such a good attitude and perspective in general about relationships with people. People, you know, we don't necessarily have to cast people as morally inept or lacking. They might be. I'm, I'm just saying they might not be. But we could just say, this is not a good relationship for me. And so I'm going to put up a bit of a distance or a bit of a wall. I don't have to be best friends with everybody, you know, and maybe this person just happens to have a different kind of you know moral code than i do or they 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 think that you know making fun of other people is funny and i don't or you know they think that this kind of behavior is admirable and i don't okay it's it's not for me you know like when my kids were little and i used to teach them if they taste food they shouldn't say eh it's disgusting you know i would teach them to say it's not my taste some people are not my taste that's okay not everybody has to be my taste <laughs>
1: Okay, (laughs) that's a great point,
0: Leslie. (laughs) That's a great point. Okay, so Cindy, did we help you out with your dilemma? Yes, helps, totally agree, thank you. All right, any other thoughts or comments on number nine?
1: Okay. I think I'm going to actually teach my
0: daughter that when she comes home from a date, she could say, He's not my taste. <laughs> I think we're going to try to work that into our family lexicon. She's going to be like, Mother, you're so weird. Okay. Moving on, we're going to do number 10 and 11 together. All right. 10. Tejas ge'ara bimevin mehakos xil mea. He, uh, sorry, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. He is only rebellion seeking wickedness, even if a cruel messenger be sent against him. All right. So again, I'm just going to read you the English. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool right? Because a person who has moral understanding and depth, even if you give them a small verbal rebuke, it's going to make a big impact, right? But a fool, we're not talking about a person with low IQ, we're talking about a person with low moral understanding, right? Even if you, so to speak, you know, bash him over the head with this information, it's still not going to sink in, and 11, he is only rebellion-seeking wickedness, even if a cruel messenger be sent against him. Meaning that if a person is looking to behave badly, right? This is what we were saying before about unless he's wearing a diaper, you can't change him. If a person is looking to behave badly, what do you think you're going to do to change their mind? If they're seeking wickedness, if that's what they're looking for, right? What, what are you going to do? Throw yourself in front of them like a, like a bus? It's not going to work. So you have to ask yourself, like with everything else, is this person open and interested in hearing what I have to say, right? And we've mentioned this so many times. It comes up in so many different examples. Um, Hillel, the elder, is quoted as saying, just as it is a mitzvah to say what can be heard, it is a mitzvah to not say what can not be heard. And a lot of times we say things because we just say things, because how can I not say it without ever asking ourselves, is what I'm about to say capable of being heard? Because you know what happens if you just say stuff all the time that people are not open to hearing, they start to tune you out and your ability to affect positive influence in the world becomes diminished. So say less, right? I, I always say this about parenting. The less you say, the more they hear. So we really want to ask ourselves: Is this person in a position of being a man of understanding, right? Which is called in Hebrew, um, "mevin." Right. This this has become Yiddishized. The word "maven," the word "maven" is used to mean like an expert, right? It comes from the Hebrew word "mevin," which means to understand, "lahavin" to understand, to be a person of bina, intuition. So. And it's not necessarily like, well, some people are really understanding and some people are not understanding. It's also timing sometimes. If I'm feeling really triggered or really emotional about something, I'm not in position of being a person of understanding. And somebody could say the wisest, most morally accurate thing to me, but I'm not in a place or or time or moment where I can hear it. So sometimes it's not just who you're talking to, but how and when you're saying it. Okay, here's the commentary. A fool gains nothing from being beaten. Meaning if a person has their mind closed to you, you could whack them over the head with your most amazing truths and it will accomplish nothing. His mind's rebellion against the moral law is inspired by his desires. Although originally he recognizes the validity of moral teaching. This is a person who is not interested in hearing what you have to say, right? And, and like I said, sometimes the nicest, most amazing people are in a position like this. I have been known to say to my friends and family, hey, guys, I'm going to vent to you and I'm not interested in your good advice. I just want your sympathy. Don't give me wisdom. I'm not interested. I'm not in a place where I can hear it. That's not what I want. You know what I want? I want you to say, oh, Rocky, I understand, right? You can beat me over the head with the best truths. I'm not. I'm not ready for it right now. Such a deliberate sinner, okay, that's that's where we stop talking about me, <laughs> such a deliberate sinner cannot be corrected, right? A person who is in this mindset where they're stuck in their emotional reality, what they want cannot be corrected, even by a hundred stripes or by a cruel messenger. On the other hand, a man of understanding, a mavin, whose acknowledgement of the moral law is not distorted by his personal needs, responds to a mere rebuke. So a person who is in a position, who, who comes to you and says, listen, I, I really need your advice. I, I really need some wisdom here. Here's what I did. Here's what I said. I'm feeling bad. I really want to know. Please tell me. I really want to know. Okay. That person is open. That person is interested. You don't need to whack them over the head with your truth. You can just give them the most subtle, you know, the most gentle bit of wisdom, and they will hear you because they are ready to receive it. So we really have to be so mindful, both for when we're in this emotionally stuck position and when we're talking to other people who are not ready and open to be corrected or guided so that we know what we're capable of receiving and we have an understanding of what other people are capable of receiving. Okay, thoughts, comments, questions on 10 and 11.
1: Anyone? Okay,
0: so that is all for today. Thank you ladies for joining and for participating. Have a wonderful Shabbat and um, thank you for studying in honor of my new grandson, Moshe. Moshe Batalla, may we always share happy news with one another um, and uh, celebrate together. Thanks everyone, and Amen. look out for thank the you. look out for the mitzvah challenge. Thank you, thank okay, so Shabbat Shalom, thank
1: you. Hi everyone, Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom. Chodesh tov.
0: Yes, Chodesh tov. May it be a good month as we gear up for yes. the high holidays. Mm.